Welcome to the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Brooke Jones, Graduate Research Assistant at the Maternal Health Learning Innovation Center. This podcast is created by the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center. Episodes are released weekly, so be sure you're subscribed. On this podcast, we listen to maternal health innovators about ways we can implement change to improve maternal health in the U.S. In today's episode, we will be talking with Larissa Mervin, Managing Attorney of Legal Aid of North Carolina's Charlotte office, where she oversees the office's operations, personnel, and casework in a variety of practice areas, including landlord-tenant, domestic violence, family, and consumer law. Prior to serving as managing attorney, Larissa worked in various roles at Legal Aid North Carolina, including a supervising attorney with Legal Aid North Carolina's statewide pro bono program, supervising attorney with the Domestic Violence Unit at Legal Aid Charlotte, and as a domestic violence staff attorney in the Concord, Raleigh, and Durham offices. In those roles, she primarily represented survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse in their civil protection order cases. Today, we're going to be talking about intimate partner violence, or IPV, as it relates to maternal health and access to care. Thanks for joining me, Larissa. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's just start by getting to know you a little bit better. Can you tell me about yourself and maybe talk a little bit about how you got involved in this work? Sure. As you mentioned, I'm an attorney at Legal Aid. I've been uh, practicing for 12 years. I've been with uh, Legal Aid about seven of those years and have primarily worked in domestic violence and have always been in public interest. I'm the mom of three beautiful children. I know that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I always share when I share about myself. That is like something I'm super proud of, proud resident of Harrisburg, North Carolina. And then as far as work goes, why I got into this work. So I knew probably in the middle of undergrad that I wanted to go to law school. So I actually started off undergrad as a dance major and had always just really found like a lot of joy in dancing. I still find a lot of joy in dancing. Halfway through my um, undergraduate like experience, I realized that I enjoyed it more as like a hobby and not so much something I would want to pursue as a career. And so I really just started like reflecting on what I could do. And because of my upbringing, I'd grown up in a low income household where there was domestic violence in the community, domestic violence that were, you know, family members and friends were experiencing. And so I thought that this was a really great way to be able to give back and get involved. And so decided to switch my major and kept dance as a minor and went into law school after that and have been in public interest in one way or another ever since. Wow, that's great. I think you've used domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Can you talk a little bit about what the definition is? Are there differences? Are Is that the same term used interchangeably? Right. So intimate partner violence refers to intimate partners. It's when an intimate partner is intentionally violent and and exhibiting power and control over another partner, you know, their partner. And they do that in a variety of ways. It could be emotional abuse, physical, sexual, financial, you know, coercive control. There's all sorts of ways in which one intimate partner can abuse another one. Domestic violence can encompass anything within the, you know, you you think of domestic law, it's essentially family law. So any child, parent, two children, two siblings, like they're different relationships, whereas intimate partners are obviously intimate partners. So domestic violence is probably a little bit broader of a term. Okay, that's helpful. 
So you were mentioning that, you know, it's it's about power and control kind of at the core, which, you know, I just wonder if a lot of people really know or if they think more so about kind of the physical violence. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what you see and how people who are coming to you for services, what they're talking about? Absolutely. I think everybody always thinks about the punches, the strangulations, the rapes, and all of those are, they happen frequently, right? So they, that, that is a very real part of intimate partner violence. However, there's also a lot of other facets of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And so you have um, threats to harm somebody, threats to harm their family, threats to call their job, threats to, you know, impact their ability to be financially independent. You have, along with financial independence, you have financial coercion and financial threats. You have people who, you know, financially isolate the other partner. And so they may not give them access to accounts. They may use their name and social security number to kind of enroll them in debt that they weren't aware of. It keeps them kind of in this this pattern. You have, you know, people who use the children to to control an abusive partner. And so they know that this partner loves their children. And so they'll use them, you know, however they can. You have harassing behaviors, controlling what people are wearing, controlling what they're doing, who they're going to see, you know, isolating them from their family and friends or any support system. Um, So there's multiple ways, you know, insults, harassing insults, name calling. There's there's a lot of ways intimate partner violence shows up and it it just varies in terms of the frequency and severity of, of how it's happening. And some forms of intimate partner violence, we know to be high lethality. Like we know that if there's strangulation involved in an incident or firearms or threats, that that raises the risk of somebody being killed by domestic violence, that it raises the risk that there'll be a homicide. So we do know that. And so we do look at severity of domestic violence when we're assessing cases like, you know, what do we need to consider when we see a case? Well, if there's a strangulation or a threat to, you know, kill somebody and the person has a firearm, well, that the lethality is going up, you know, and then we know that there might be a homicide coming. And so safety planning to consider that and, you know, communicating with court systems to make sure proper protections are in place. There's all sorts of ways that domestic violence and intimate partner violence can show. Yeah. And just sitting with that a little bit, it's a lot of it is is not physical that you mentioned. A lot of it really is kind of the emotional, social, psychological, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I think that that that's part of the difficulty in communicating with institutions and systems to make sure that people are getting access to services, whether that's through healthcare or, you know, government services or legal services, just whatever they may need. Sometimes hard to communicate that because if the person doesn't have a black eye or, you know, doesn't visibly look like they're experiencing intimate partner violence, you know, sometimes the the provider, whether that be legal provider, healthcare provider, whatever, is just not going to pick up on it. And so it's really important to know the, the many ways that it manifests so that the proper questions are being asked. Yeah, that's a great point. So 
I want to definitely get to systems and systems work, but can you share a little bit about statistics on intimate partner violence, kind of both at the national level and then specifically related to your work in North Carolina? Absolutely. So we know that it's incredibly common. It happens all the time. There's probably somebody you know right now who's experiencing intimate partner violence and you just may not be aware You know, according to the CDC, about one in three women and one in four men report having experienced physical violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime. And about one in five women and one in 13 men have experienced some sort of sexual violence by an intimate partner. You know, I know we'll get to this later, but like some of that increases depending on demographics. So we know that uh, women of color experience it at a higher level in other marginalized communities. North Carolina, we know that from 2019 to 2021, there were approximately a little over 138,000 reports of assaults committed by former intimate partners or family members. And that was according to like the Criminal Justice Analysis Center. We also know that filings, domestic violence, uh, court filings have gone up significantly in the past couple of years since COVID. And here being in Charlotte, we have one of the highest rates of domestic violence protective order filings compared to the rest of the state. So we also know that we're not 100% sure why Charlotte, you know, there's theories and I imagine some of it has to do with like all sorts of services, affordable housing, you know, other factors. For instance, if you can't access affordable housing, you're not going to leave your partner, right? And so things like that. Yeah. So that's just a little bit about like statistics in the country and in North Carolina. And so what about for those who are kind of experiencing or going through like the perinatal period? So like in pregnancy and the postpartum period, what, what about those individuals? Right. So we also, data has shown us that a risk of intimate partner violence and the lethality of the intimate partner violence rises significantly during the perinatal period in the like 365 days following the termination of a pregnancy. Data sources vary. There's different MMRCs, maternal mortality review committees in different states, and how they view data and how they contextualize the data is, you know, that they receive to make their decisions is, it varies depending on the state. But here I have some some statistics, some examples of different states. So for instance, in Virginia, homicides during the perinatal period were 14.8% and larger than any single natural cause of death. So that's pretty, you know, that's pretty significant. And data in Illinois from 2002 to 2011 indicated that at 12.9%, the prevalence of homicide during the perinatal period was higher than the mortality rate from any of the four leading causes of death directly related to pregnancy. And that includes, you know, hemorrhage, emboli, severe preeclampsia, anaclampsia, and sepsis. So we know it's significant, right? Like it's a big problem. It's affecting people in any area of, you know, their adult and, you know, childhood lives, but especially during this perinatal period, we know it it increases significantly. So, you know, and you may not know the answer to this, but when we're talking about maternal mortality and we hear like the statistics and we're talking about this country and, you know, how it's worse, you know, for this country, I don't know that I've really heard or like had a lot of information about homicide. I hear more about kind of these obstetric causes. So why why do you think that is? Like what what is happening that there isn't a focus on homicide? 
That is a very good question. <laughs> I'm not sure that I have the answer to that. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's things that we can do to uh, when we're looking at homicide to figure out how much of it is related to intimate partner violence, like death certificates and how death certificates are filled out and written, but um, why people focus more on, you know, any particular natural cause versus domestic violence or intimate partner violence. I'm not sure. So, you know, tell me a little bit, like how have some of these trends you mentioned, you know, kind of COVID, but, you know, how have things evolved since you've been working in this field? And, you know, I know that there's been some really high profile deaths specifically in Charlotte. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yes. So what we know is that strangulations and firearms have gone up. Those cases have gone up significantly. The thing with COVID too is that you know, we still don't even understand the impact that COVID's had, right? Like we will not for a while understand the full impact COVID's had, but we know that people were forced to be home with their family members, many of whom they've not maybe been around as long, you know, for long periods of time. They didn't have access to leave, to care, to do other things. And when, you know, intimate partners are already isolated, that was just even more of an isolating time, right? Like people who didn't experience intimate partner violence were isolated during COVID. So those experiencing it were even more so isolated and experiencing, you know, significant forms of domestic violence. We also know that it affected people's mental health. And so there was a lot of, you know, increased depression and financial issues as people were losing jobs and all sorts of other factors that we also know can contribute to the frequency and severity of domestic violence. So so all those things played out. But what we also know is that our homicides are going up in North Carolina. So for instance, in the first nine months of this year, have 57, which is 10 more than we had in 12 months last year. So we know that the homicides have gone up and unfortunately will likely continue throughout the end of the year. And so that number is going to be higher by December and, you know, would have been significantly higher than last year. Why that is, you know, remains to be seen. Like we still have to like dig into that, but we know it's rising. And as I mentioned earlier, we also know that the court filings are rising significantly. There's also certain like districts and um, counties in North Carolina that experience domestic violence at a higher rate. Why that is, people think it's connected to services. Again, like we were talking about earlier with Charlotte and affordable housing, that you don't have services for people or if you have the services, but they can't access them due to finances or a variety of factors, then we know that the intimate partner violence is going to go up. That is something that people are looking into and, and looking to address. One clarifying thing, when you say court filings, do you mean domestic violence restraining orders? Yes. So thank you. That is, that is a very good point. Yes. Survivors who are going to court to file protective orders. Now, there's also other court filings connected to domestic violence. Like somebody might be filing for child custody. They might, there might be criminal court that they have to attend like in response to, to an assault or something like that. But what I'm referring to is the, yeah, the DVP, what we call DVPO, Domestic Violence Protective Order Filings. Okay. And I, I do want to go back a little bit because something that you had mentioned earlier, which also may be connected to kind of lack of affordable housing is just disparities related to IPV. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit or just delve a little bit deeper around kind of 
structural factors, historical factors that really contribute to these particular issues? Sure. So I'll share some statistics and then also share some of the like barriers. So approximately 41% of Black women have experienced physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime. That's compared to 31% of white women, 30% of Hispanic women, and 15% of Asian and Pacific Islander women. So that's showing us right there that Black non-Hispanic women are experiencing it at a higher rate than any other any other population in our country. According to the CDC, Black and American Indian women experienced the highest rates of homicide, and over half of those were connected to intimate partner violence. And in terms of the structural and historical barriers, I found this quote by Giselle Hunt that I was like, I just have to share because I think it like articulates so well, you know, many of the issues. It says, many cultural considerations can hinder healing for Black women survivors. The burdensome expectation of strong Black womanhood, the power of the Black church, the desire to shield Black men, and the lack of self-care examples are all real dynamics Black women survivors endure. And she wrote this in her field lessons from reporting on Black women survivors of sexual violence. So I think that's like a really, you know, she articulates really well, like some of the cultural considerations to think about when we're dealing with Black women survivors. You know, in addition to that, I would just say there's also distrust and mistrust of law enforcement and institutions, right? And so because of historical oppression, societal oppression, a lot of populations, including Black women and and Hispanics and and other marginalized communities are going to be a little bit more cautious when they are talking to law enforcement, talking to healthcare uh, providers, other institutions. There's going to be barriers there. Yeah. And I've seen just my interest is perinatal homicide specific to IPV. And I've seen increased rates for those who are non-Hispanic Black women. Now, based on literature, you know, I I think folks have said like that, you know, the race is a risk factor, but I think there's a real push now towards kind of considering like racism as a, as a risk factor. Right. So can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of, and I, and I think that connects really well to the quote that you just read in terms of kind of shielding Black men and these pieces that go towards just the everyday life and the choice that someone may be facing, you know, in terms of disclosing IPV, protecting their partner, their family, their community. Like, can you talk a little bit about that and what you see? Sure. I mean, I will say, too, before, like, we even get into the intimate partner violence context, we have to consider that Black women in general, the maternal mortality rates are just worse for Black women in general, right? And so, I mean, and and a lot of people have shared, you know, more recently their stories. Some high-profile people recently have shared stories about what they experienced and a level of disbelief that they experienced from their providers when they communicated issues that they were having, right? So that's like a very real thing. And then on, and then when you add intimate partner violence to that and you couple that with the historical oppression, societal oppression, lack of communication between provider and patient, and then on top of that intimate partner violence. And some of these things like the intimate partner violence survivors are experiencing is any race, right? Like, like they're in a place of isolation and fear. And so they're already going to be more hesitant to 
express that to any institution for fear of all sorts of reasons, right? Fear of retaliation by the abuser, fear of losing their children to DSS, fear of how the court systems and different systems will react, fear that the provider is going to be required, a mandated reporter and required to report, and they may not be ready to report, right? So there's all sorts of things that anybody would experience. But when you consider what Black women have experienced, going back to your point, there may be this all these factors, whether it's a desire to protect the Black man, which is a very real thing, right? Like the our system's not doing it, our government's not doing it. And so, you know, there's definitely a, a concern that those of us within the community have to do it. So, you know, the Black church, you know, that was also an example given in that quote. You know, we've seen ways that religion can really, unfortunately, impact whether or not somebody decides to leave an abusive relationship. And, you know, there's there's also research about that, not only in the Black church, but in the Latinx community and, and you know, Roman Catholicism and like kind of like this idea of a woman's place and marriage and what people should be doing or should not be doing and what they should live with and not live through. I mean, I, you know, I think that's also why faith-based um, partnerships are really important because I think sometimes it's just education and understanding because there are a lot of churches doing really great work in this area. I don't want to paint the picture that like, you know, religion's bad or that religion, you know, because spirituality is definitely something that actually helps people through these situations. So. I definitely don't want to paint that picture, but I think it's a matter of education and changing the narrative so that, you know, we can have a better understanding of what intimate partner violence is, what these women are experiencing, some men are experiencing, and how we can partner with faith-based organizations and churches to kind of fix it. The point, though, is that that just goes to show how many factors are at play. There's a lot. There's a lot at play here, right? And so it's hard to, like, pinpoint one thing or you know, say it's this or say it's that, but we know that overall structural and historical, you know, oppression have impacted Black women's maternal mortality and especially those who are experiencing intimate partner violence. Thank you, because I think, I think you just kind of said a lot that is so powerful and so important in terms of recognizing kind of the the context, right? Like people, people in context. And this podcast is, you know, a lot of our listeners are going to be healthcare providers and kind of thinking about the full context, thinking about like how hard it might be for somebody to disclose IPV to you and, and, you know, sitting down and having a conversation about that. I think recognizing the difficulty of having these types of conversations and just the amount of trust and the amount of rapport that you have to build, you know, with somebody in order to, you know, have them feel comfortable enough to do that. So, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, maybe some statistics and particular issues affecting the Black community, but what about the Latinx community? Absolutely. So about 23.4% of Hispanic or Latina women are victimized by intimate partners. Hispanic women were more likely um, than non-Hispanic women to report they'd been raped by a current or intimate former intimate partner. And there's also some research that shows that Puerto Rican women experience the highest rates of intimate partner violence during pregnancy compared to other Latinx subgroups. And so why 
you know, that is, I'm not 100% clear, but the data does show that that does go up. Going back to like cultural considerations to think about when we're working with various populations, a lot of the literature shows that in the context of Hispanic families or intimate partner violence, and some of the barriers are language and access barriers, right? And so like, if language is an issue, then that's obviously going to be a barrier to any system in our country, whether it's healthcare, court systems, whatever. And I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, we've done better over the years about, you know, interpreters, translators, things like that. But there's still not the same when you talk about trust, the same trust relationship, right? Like for somebody to share this sort of information, there really has to be a level of trust there. If there's a third party interpreter or translator, like that sometimes is going to be even harder to develop that sense of trust or comfort in sharing very intimate, you know, details about somebody's life. And so to the extent possible, having bilingual providers, I think, is really helpful so that that third party is not necessary. I also think that it's important when you're talking about language and access barriers, you know, to have people who can interpret like a bilingual person who can interpret the content. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of bilingual people who are not trained in the the skill of interpretation. It is something that requires a certain level of like accuracy and speed and, you know, clarity. And so I think if we have in any system, whether it's healthcare, you know, legal, if we have bilingual providers, advocates, I think it's important to train them to have the skill set they need to be able to use their language abilities in a way that helps the patient or helps the client. You know, there's all sorts of trainings out there, but I think supporting our staff who have that ability is incredibly important so we can cut out the middle man and, you know, have natural, comfortable conversations, which is what's going to elicit the information that we need to get people the, the resources and safety information that they need. But aside from language barriers, there's also like, again, a mistrust of institutions, especially if somebody's undocumented. They are not going to want to go anywhere where they think somebody might disclose that documentation status, right? There's going to be the fear of ICE, fear of deportation, and healthcare providers or legal providers, you know, they could say all day long that that's not going to happen. We won't do that. But the reality is people will see it as an institution of the state or of an institution of power and, and think that that is a possibility. You know, messaging, I think, continued messaging in their communities about the available care and the fact that that won't happen, I think is is important. There's also, and I definitely don't want to overgeneralize cultures, right? Like this is just based on literature. So some of the things I'm about to say, listen, I get it. I'm Afro-Latina. And so I feel like some, you know, I get it. Like people say some stuff and I'm like, well, okay, we're not all like that, but whatever. But I do think there are cultural considerations that that are a real thing, right? And so the two of those concepts are machismo and marianismo, right? Like machismo is this like strong sense of masculine pride, exaggerated masculinity has been traditionally common in our culture and, you know, the the Latinx culture. Um, Literature shows it contributes to this increased amount of intimate partner violence in Latinx communities. There's also Marianismo, which is like Mary, the Virgin Mary, right? Like that's where the name comes from. And Roman Catholicism is incredibly 
dominant in the in the culture, right? And so the idea of the Virgin Mary being the ideal woman to aspire to and having traits of like self-sacrifice and family and morality and chastity and all these things being kind of like what should guide a woman, right? And so when you put machismo, masculinity, and marianismo together, what do you get that like can create a really toxic relationship, right? You get somebody who's overpowering and somebody who feels like they have to submit. And if they think it's God mandated that, that's going to be really hard to convince them otherwise. There's also studies that show that Latina women um, are usually paid lower and, and have lower skilled positions compared to the rest of the workforce. So when we were talking about financial barriers earlier, that also can contribute, right? If there's these financial barriers and if they're undocumented, their access to work is going to be hindered. And so that's going to affect their ability to leave an abusive partner. So again, a mouthful, just like just like when I was talking about, you know, the Black community, but it's, just, it's true. There's just so many factors that go into kind of marginalized communities and why it's so much harder to provide care for marginalized communities and for them to get the access that they need to systems to get them to safety. Yeah, well, and and as you were talking, I was, you know, thinking about sort of healthcare systems and, you know, maybe limitations that you have based on like the geographic area that you're in. And I think, you know, I think that there are some, some guidelines around, for example, the language issues and having interpreters available but, you know, that's not perfect, right? I think it's almost like thinking about it as a spectrum, like probably on the on the end that we really don't want to do, especially in intimate partner violence, is to use a person who's, you know, in the room that's a family member or a loved one for translation. Like that's that's not going to be a good idea. And then there's, it sounds like what you're saying is kind of more in the middle is this idea of like, you know, interpretation, but there's some limitations around, you know, are they doing it quickly? Are they pulling in kind of cultural considerations? And then maybe the best option would be, you know, representation, right? Like from the community in those spaces. What do you think in terms of like, you know, I think about North Carolina and like the very like rural areas. What are some things that like maybe the larger healthcare systems could do like to just ensure representation? Yeah. So this is something we think about all the time in the legal context too, like legal deserts, and they just don't have the same amount of providers and access to resources that those of us in Charlotte or Raleigh or, you know, Asheville or wherever do. I think for one, like, we need representation there. And so are we creating incentives for people to work in rural areas, you know, and what does that look like in terms of salary and other benefits and things to incentivize people to, to be a provider, to be, provide these services in rural areas. But I also think like funding and accessing funding opportunities and grants and things like that to benefit rural areas. Like I know like OVW and, some other, you know, grant providers have grants out there for rural areas. And so I think accessing those so that people in in rural areas can get the services they need. I think that's important. And and even seeing where, you know, we can use technology to 
create access. Like not everybody has access to technology, right? And so where are places in rural areas where we can place like kiosks and technology services so that people may be able to access somebody in Chapel Hill or Durham, you know, understanding that they're not going to have the technology themselves. Like what are ways that we can go about doing that so that they can get the care they need? So those are things we think about like in, in legal deserts that I think would apply also in like a medical desert. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think post COVID we're all thinking a little differently in terms of how can we make technology, you know, HIPAA compliant, safe and get those services to people who need them. I really liked your point about kind of the funding stream. So OVW is the Office of Violence Against Women? Yes. Right. Okay. And they, do they also fund domestic violence agencies and sexual assault agencies? How does that kind of funding stream down? Yes. I'm not familiar with all of their funding opportunities. I do know that they, you know, from my context of being in the legal field, I know they, they offer legal grants to a variety of, of areas, including metropolitan and rural areas. I'm not sure um, what all their funding opportunities are, but I mean, they are the the office that really like oversees violence against women, right? And so they they are looking into different ways to fund different opportunities so that people are getting the care they need. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like maybe an opportunity, however that funding is happening, is is looking at cultural considerations and making sure that the framework that IPV services are, you know, working from includes cultural humility, right? Absolutely. And and understanding that the context may be different for people who are walking through the door. Right. And absolutely. And also just utilizing partnerships, right? Like medical legal partnerships and, you know, again, like faith-based groups and things like that, which in rural communities are even more significant sometimes than in the urban areas. Somebody may be able to access a church easier in a rural area than then they can access, you know, a shelter or a provider or something like that. And so to making sure that we're getting the providers to those places, whether through, again, technology kiosks that we're placing there or actual people that we're incentivizing to go there. So making things trauma-informed. Absolutely. Trauma-informed, which I feel like that's like such a buzz buzzwords lately like everybody's like oh trauma-informed trauma-informed but it's true and there's still so much work to be done right in the trauma-informed kind of area like I know from the legal process the chief justice chief justice newbie has like implemented the what task force on aces informed courts which is like adverse child experiences and he's you know there's a whole task force trying to address the bench, which are, you know, judges and attorneys and things like that becoming like the bench and the bar becoming more trauma informed. But I think it's going to take time because you have all sorts of people who've been set in their ways for a while and are learning about trauma, being trauma informed now. And so I do think it takes relationship building. It takes time. It takes um, training and education in every field to make a difference. And I think it's important, again, going back to the partnerships, that it is in every field, right? Because of healthcare is becoming more trauma-informed, but the legal processes are not, or vice versa. You're not having this holistic care for a survivor. You really need like wraparound services and holistic care for survivors so that they're having a trauma-informed experience overall. 
um, not just pieces here and there, which then re-traumatize them over here, but like they're fine over here. You know what I mean? The family justice center concept is a concept that was created with that in mind. It started in San Diego and multiple states have implemented it. North Carolina has a few family justice centers. I know Charlotte is getting one. We're calling it the Umbrella Center. That's in 2025. Safe Alliance is heading that that effort. And there's a couple, you know, a few others throughout the state. Asheville has a, a well-known one and, you know, High Point, I believe, has another one, High Point in Greensboro. But the idea is that a survivor can go into a family justice center and get all the care they need, right? And so they can get information on shelter services. They can get healthcare. Like they actually have healthcare providers there with an exam room and everything. So they're getting the healthcare that they need with trauma-informed healthcare providers. They have access to law enforcement if they want to file a report or talk to law enforcement. And it's well known that like you should be able to go there and not worry about deportation or stuff like that. Or, you know, so like trauma-informed law enforcement is there. You have legal services that are there. So like legal aid, for instance, would be there. Other legal services organizations might be there. Uh, you have, you know, social services, talk about benefits and all sorts of things that they may need. We They have counselors there to act as therapists and, and kind of work through that process. They have child care providers to take care of child care issues while the parent is, the victim parent is kind of going through all these steps. They have trauma-informed and uh, childhood-specific like sexual assault teams that can address childhood abuse and, and sexual assault. So, like literally, these buildings and these you know centers have everything in one, and so this survivor is able to go in and get all the care that they need in like one-stop shop, and can then get, I get, you know, access to whatever it, it is that they need. And they may have to stay in communication with various different agencies that were there beyond that first visit. But at least in that first visit, they're, they're there and they only have to go to one place. It's potentially easier for the providers to communicate with each other too. Like if legal needed to subpoena some medical records or, you know, get the patient to sign a release of information, which we do all the time to use in court, well, it's going to be a lot easier if the provider's like right there, you know what I mean? And we're able to walk across and just get what we need versus sending it wherever. So I think um, that the model is a great model and I can't wait till the, to the one opens up in Charlotte. But anyway, that's just an, an idea of like the partnerships and how to make things more trauma-informed and how to be creative and making sure that we're putting all the different providers together in one, in one space. Yeah. I love that. It makes so much sense. Just again, like transportation issues and appointments all over town, people having relationships, it, it makes a lot of sense. So I, you know, I'd love to ask you just, you know, as a, as a lawyer who probably is encountering folks who have experienced, you know, a long history of IPV or maybe more significant physical, sexual instances of IPV, they're coming to you sort of in crisis, right, when they come to you. I guess I'm wondering if you're looking at all their documentation and you're hearing the story and, and you are thinking about their health care and you're looking sort of backwards. You know, if you're looking from that lens, what is it that you think healthcare providers can do to help in this process for victim survivors? Yeah, I think it's important, one, to ask the questions and two, to document 
even if it's not going to be reported. I think it's important to document because as a legal provider, you know, if somebody tells me that they went to Atrium or Novant or wherever, like the first records I'm pulling are those records. So I think it's very helpful if a provider suspects something to to document it and ask the right questions. And I also think going to a point that we made earlier, I think it's important to be mindful of the questions that we're even asking. Like sometimes, again, physical abuse is the only thing people are thinking about or, you know, the only thing that's being considered because like, obviously if somebody comes in with a black eye, you wonder how they got it, right? Like who did that to you? What are some other, you know, ways that we can be asking someone you know, if they feel safe, well, that's great. Do you feel safe? But like, do you have the care you need? Are you able to financially be independent, provide for your family, things like that? And if not, why not? Like, is it because you, you know, your partner are, you know, struggling through life, which happens, you know, or is it because, you know, you don't have access and kind of like digging deeper into some of the the other ways that people are being controlled and figuring out if they are asking those questions, which takes a lot longer, but is more thorough and could potentially save somebody in the end. Yeah, absolutely. So asking the questions, screening, building rapport, trusting relationships. What would you say to a healthcare provider who might be hesitant to incorporate screening into their practice, either because of Maybe they're aware there's limited resources in the area or maybe their own view of their like scope of practice. Yeah, I would tell them to do it anyway. <laughs> My thing is being worried that there's not enough resources or that you don't know what to say or that it's not part of the scope. of Like, I don't know what that has to do with sharing information, like share it anyway. You, again, it's a matter of life or death. You don't know like, like how that bit of information will benefit that person, even if they don't take it then. Like, even if they're not ready to leave, because we all know like the, the common statistic takes like seven to 10 times for somebody to leave for good. Even if we don't know if they will, like that bit of information might be what they refer to later. Like it's so important to provide that resource because we never know when they are going to be in a position to leave, when they are going to maybe have a support that they didn't have before to be able to make that exit. And we want them to be able to do it and we want them to be able to do it safely because we also know that the time that they leave is significantly, you know, they're at significantly higher risk of being killed during that time the abusers just lost their control, right? And so, you know, during that risk period, making sure that they're that they're safe and they have access to safe resources, again, just sharing that information and first of all, getting the information that you need to then share it and then sharing it, I think is critical. And I don't think there's a reason not to do it. And, and I don't even think it's our place to decide whether or not, you know, the person needs it or it's beneficial or, they're going to use it or why do they keep coming back and why do I keep giving them some, you know, that's, that doesn't matter in the end. Like it's what matters is that we do our part to make sure that if somebody needs it, they have it, even if it's far away, you know, even if that's the only resource available that's far away, well, that might be something they can still utilize like one day when they're ready and they have access to get there. So you just provide what you have and, but provide it. Yeah. Yeah. And for folks who are, you know, listening, there's national resources related to domestic violence and sexual assault. You know, I know there's uh, Leoid has a helpline as well. Do you want to talk about that at all? 
Absolutely. So the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence has a statewide hotline. That's 1-800-799-7233. You can definitely call there. They'll start getting you access to services and resources, especially in your local community. I also encourage you to visit Legal Aid's um, website regarding domestic violence and also Helpline. Um, The website is stopthecyclenc.org. Stopthecyclenc.org. And there is an exit option. Same with North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and and Safe Alliance and other um, organizations that work in the domestic violence space. We always have exit buttons so that if if somebody's in immediate danger, they can easily exit the website. Just know that that's an option, but stopthecyclenc.org. Definitely go there to learn more about domestic violence and how Legal Aid is, is working to address it and kind of the services we provide. If you need representation in a domestic violence protective order, there are services that we have available. I would encourage you to call our helpline 866-219-LANCE. That's 866-219-5262. And we have many dedicated uh, domestic violence attorneys that would be happy to talk to you about your matter and either advise you or represent you in court to the extent they have the capacity to do so, but we advise everybody. So even when we're not able to represent somebody in court, we do provide them with detailed advice on how to best, you know, handle their situation and address their need. Such a great resource. Well, I know we're running out of time. I want to thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I just appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I Love, it's such a sad topic, but I love to talk about it because it, I'm like, if it makes a difference, you know, then then I did my job and job well done. I'm really excited anytime I get the opportunity to share awareness about domestic violence, and hopefully one day we'll see that number decrease. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Well, thank you everyone for listening. For more podcasts, videos, blogs, and maternal health content, uh, please visit the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center website at maternalhealthlearning.org. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear more of, review our podcast, and share with like-minded innovators. We've got some great episodes recording now, so be sure you're subscribed. And let's keep talking. Tag us in your posts using the hashtag Maternal Health Innovation. I'm Brooke Jones, and we'll see you again next week on the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast. This project is supported by the Health Resources and Service Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, under grant number U7CMC33636, State Maternal Health Innovation Support and Implementation Program Cooperative Agreement. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.